Hello and welcome to the Chair's Corner from the Department of Medicine at the University of North Carolina. This is our series where we discuss different genetic diseases with physicians who treat patients with these conditions. And today, we're going to be talking about HHT, hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia. And we welcome Dr. Raj Kashthuri, an associate professor of medicine in our division of hematology oncology, who serves as the medical director for the UNC HHD Center of Excellence. Dr. Kashturi helps many, many patients who have this disorder. We're going to use the acronym HHT because it's easier to say than hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia each time. Welcome, Dr. Kashturi. Thank you. So what is HHT? What is hemorrhagic telangiectasia? HHT, as you've said, hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia, used to also be called Osler-Weber-Rendu disease. And now we've changed the name to conform more to what people experience when they have HHT. Hereditary stands for something that runs in families and is inherited. Hemorrhagic stands for a tendency to bleed. And telangiectasia comes from the Greek word where telos means end, angion means vessel, and ectasia is dilation. So put that together and you get a dilated blood vessel. So what HHT is, is a disorder that runs in families where affected people have dilated blood vessels that tend to bleed. Perfect. How common is it? One in 5,000 people, we believe, have HHT worldwide. That's a lot. Is it more in some populations than in others? It has been described to be more than one in 5,000 in certain parts of the world in Northern Europe, but there isn't a propensity within any one country or any one race. HHT occurs in everybody. How common is it in the United States? The same one in 5,000 would put it at about 70,000 people with HHT in the United States. Is there an increased prevalence here in North Carolina, or is it just as common here or not as common as it is everywhere else? Is it equally dispersed, in other words, in the United States? We believe it's equally dispersed in the United States, and that would put about 1,500 to 2,000 patients with HHD in our state. Okay. What does somebody feel like? What are the symptoms of somebody who has HHT? The cardinal symptom of HHT is nosebleeds. Really? And the nosebleeds is a result of these abnormal blood vessels that they develop. And when these blood vessels happen in the lining of the nose, then with irritation, uh, they develop nosebleeds. The tricky part of HHT is, it, even though it's inherited, it tends to show itself with age. It tends to have a age-dependent expression So it can be very tricky making the diagnosis in children. So wait a minute. It is an inherited disorder that is picked up later in life. That's correct. Why? Do the blood vessels dilate over time? What happens? So they tend to develop over time, and the average age of onset of nosebleeds is estimated to be somewhere in the mid-teens around the ages of 14, 15. But if you take a 14-year-old and they develop nosebleeds, the first five things that come to mind are probably not an inherited genetic disorder. Right. And, and so 
It is not until later on in life when the bleeding gets more severe and they start to develop these abnormal blood vessels more obviously over their skin in their hands, the, the fingertips, around the nails, around the lips, that people start to think about HHT. What does a telangiectasia really look like? A telangiectasia is a small red or purple pinpoint lesion, or it can be a cluster, and it classically blanches, meaning when we put pressure on it, so if you press over it, it will disappear. But once you release the pressure, it blushes back on, and that's a, a classic telangiectasia. And they can occur on the face, on the hands. Where else do they happen? They classically tend to happen on the face, uh, in, over the hands, in the lips, the lining of the um, mucosa in the mouth. So you could see it on the tongue. You could see it in the lining of the mouth, the roof of the mouth, over the earlobes. Brain? Yes. Lungs? Yes. Internal heart? organs, not heart. So it is very interesting, and we haven't quite figured out why this is, but outside of the skin and mucosa lining, HHT likes to involve only select internal organs. It affects the brain. It affects the lungs, it affects the liver, and the GI tract in that the lining of the GI tract can also develop these spots, and they can bleed too, causing GI bleeding. So what happens in the lung? What are the symptoms in the lung? So the internal organ involvement with HHT is very similar to what happens over the skin, which is patients develop abnormal blood vessels. When these develop in internal organs, we call them arteriovenous malformations, or AVMs. And everything that happens in the lung with HHT is because of these AVMs. Uh, what can happen if blood passes through an AVM, because these are dilated blood vessels, they, they do poorly at exchanging oxygen and carbon dioxide. And so any blood that passes through an AVM leaves the lung laden with carbon dioxide and not oxygen. That may not mean much when we're sitting down and talking to each other, but when you do activities, go upstairs, go up an incline, you get winded sooner than you otherwise would because you're not getting enough oxygen. You're shunting blood from the arterial tree to the venous tree much, exactly. more, much more rapidly. What happens in the brain? What are the symptoms in the brain? Stroke. Hemorrhagic stroke oh. is the dreaded complication from these brain AVMs. How is HHT inherited? It is inherited in an autosomal dominant fashion, meaning all you have to do is one affected gene to manifest the disease and to pass it on. And so anybody who's got HHD has a 50% chance of passing that on to their offspring. And how good is the genetic test for HHD at this point? The genetic test is good in the sense that if you have a pathogenic or a, an HHD-associated mutation identified on genetic testing that absolutely confirms the disease. Is it one gene? Is it several genes? There are three genes that, that are known to be involved in HHD, and all of them are involved in the same, at various aspects of the same signaling pathway involving the lining of the blood vessel, the endothelium. And what are those genes? Endoglin, ACVRL1 or ALK1, which are both uh, part of the receptor complex on the surface of the endothelial cell for transforming growth factor beta, and SMAD4, which is downstream of this receptor complex. What's interesting about SMAD4 is it's the same gene that causes juvenile polyposis. So people who have HHT but have a SMAD4 mutation have a dual disorder. They have both juvenile polyposis and HHT. Is one 
uh, of those genes more frequently mutated than others? So 80% of HHT we believe is explained by endoglin mutations or ALK1 mutations. Between the two of them, we think they're pretty evenly spread, although there are pockets in the world where one is more common than the other. SMAD4 mutations causing HHT are much less common. Only 3 to 5% of patients with HHT will have it because of a SMAD4 mutation. So that leads me to 83 to 84%. What happened to the other 17%? Excellent question. So, which is why I said genetic testing is good when you find a mutation, but 15% of the time, even though somebody manifests clinically all of the signs and symptoms of having HHT, the genetic testing will be negative. And in that setting, we have to make the diagnosis clinically. Right. So, if you have a diagnosis of HHT, what do you do? What are the treatments? So, there are a number of treatments, but no cure as yet. The way to treat HHD is to treat the symptoms related to the disorder. Nosebleeds being the most common, we have to do a good job of treating nosebleeds, and that involves simple measures that everybody who's affected can do at home, like using a humidifier overnight, like using topical moisturizers to the nose to keep the mucus lining of the nose moist at all times. And depending on how severe they are, then there are also surgical approaches and medical treatments, more and more medical treatments now, that we use to control the development of these telangiectasias and the bleeding associated with it. How about if you have a shortness of breath because you have many arterial venous malformations or AVMs in your lung? Do you surgically go in or radiologically go in and, and plug them up? Right. So we go, go in primarily radiologically. So the, in addition to treating the nosebleeds and the related complication from nosebleeds, which is anemia, and up to 50% of people with HHT will develop iron deficiency mm -hmm. and anemia because of that, because of just ongoing bleeding. In addition to that, there are guidelines as to how to look for screen AVMs in the brain and the lungs and, and then to fix them if they meet certain criteria. The best way to pick up a lung AVM is to do a contrast echocardiogram, what we call a bubble echocardiogram. And if that suggests that there is a shunt in the lungs, then we do a CT scan, look for these AVMs, and then if present and meet criteria where we can go fix it, we fix it with help of interventional radiology. So radiologist goes in through the groin, just like an angiogram for the heart, but and, and embolizes the pulmonary AVMs. What's the life expectancy then for somebody with HHT? We believe if all of the symptoms are treated and the AVMs are screened for and fixed appropriately, a person with HHT should have a lifetime that's not much different from anybody else. The, if that is not done, then complications from these AVMs or severe persistent anemia could affect the life expectancy of a patient with HHD. And you said there were medical therapies on the horizon. What are those? So the latest advance in HHT is the use of anti-angiogenic approaches to treat HHT, where we could use medications that are now approved primarily in the world of 
oncology to treat cancer as an adjunct to chemotherapy. And these drugs are targeted at the development of blood vessels where they prevent development of new blood vessels, which is something we can then exploit in a disorder where the problem is primarily development of abnormal new blood vessels. Fascinating. A patient with HHT then really needs a, an organization that specializes in taking care of these patients. It's a multidisciplinary approach. What does it mean to be a center of excellence, an HHT center of excellence? HHT centers of excellence is a concept that was created in the early 90s, primarily driven by a patient advocacy group that came together uh, used to be called the HHT Foundation International, now rebranded as Cure HHT. And they partnered with interested groups of physicians around the country to form centers where they provided all of the necessary components that you would need to provide one-stop care for HHT. At, at, and that would involve a medical director who takes care of appropriate screening, a, an interventional radiologist who has expertise in embolizing these AVMs, a genetic counselor, so patients can, and families can be educated about HHT, uh, and an ENT provider who has expertise in how best to take care of these nasal telangiectasias that cause bleeding, as well as less frequent complications of HHT, such as pulmonary hypertension, high output heart failure as a complication of liver AVMs. So the idea is to bring all of this expertise together in one spot. In one spot. UNC has a Center for Excellence in HHT. Yes, the UNC HHT Center for Excellence was started in 2011. How would you tell somebody uh, who is not being seen in the center, who is just being diagnosed, where would you have them look to find more information about HHD? I would suggest people look at the Cure HHD website. It is curehhd.org. It is a fantastic resource for patients and family members where there are there's a lot of patient education material there. In addition to also a directory of current HHD centers of excellence, so they can also guide patients to the closest HHD center where they could seek further management. What then are the uh, challenges that the HHT community faces? I think the biggest challenge in the HHT community now would be awareness. Best data we have suggest only about two out of 10 people with HHT know what they have oh, is no, HHT. That's a terribly low number. Yes, it is. And, and so there's a long way to go in terms of raising awareness so patients understand what they have. And a big part of this is also educating providers. Because even if a patient does the right thing and goes to a physician and says, I've got all these problems, if the physician cannot make the diagnosis of HHT, then we're going in circles. Right. And, and so awareness, both providers and patients, is one big challenge. And the second is access to care. Even if you have HHT, there are only 25 HHT centers of excellence in our country right now. And not all 25 of them are in an individual state. There are three centers in California, and, and there are a number of states without a center. And in today's world and the way things function with insurance, patients may not be able to get to an HHT center. So access to care is another big problem. 
what's the way to answer those two issues, awareness and access? Um, I will answer the second question first. In terms of access to care, and, and this is something that we recently got, uh, are working with the, the CDC and have a grant to work on, is there is a very similar disease to HHT, which is hemophilia. And hemophilia has hemophilia treatment centers that are designated comprehensive models of multidisciplinary care. And there is at least one hemophilia center in every state. What we are now working is to see if we can educate the hemophilia center team huh. to take care of HHT. And we are conducting a pilot study right now. If that pans out, then that would be a quick solution to have HHT expertise in every state. Yeah. And, and, and so that is a a reasonably quick answer to try and address the access question. The awareness question is a more challenging one. More podcasts. Uh, more podcasts, yes, indeed. Uh, and, and also, there are regional conferences. Uh, as we get more HHT centers, and they do work in their community to educate, get the word out, that's the way to get at this. Uh, Raj Kasturi, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. Thanks so much to our listeners for tuning in. Next time, we'll be talking to Anil Gehi, a cardiologist about a genetic disease that affects the heart known as the long QT syndrome. You can subscribe to The Chair's Corner on iTunes, SoundCloud, or like us on Facebook. Thanks so much for listening.